Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Congressman Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th District of California. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Khanna.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna, R-O. And with us is Congressman Ro Khanna. The, uh, he represents the 17th District of California. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Khanna.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna, R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A. Representative Connor, welcome back to the program. You've got quite a pile of stuff that you all are working on right now. What would you like to share with us first? Well, first, we have to get something done here. I mean, the Progressive Caucus has been so clear, Tom, and you know, because I've been on and Mark Pocan has been on. And we said from the beginning that we have to get the full president's agenda through. This is not Bernie Sanders' agenda. It's not the Progressive Caucus agenda. It's the president's agenda. And then they said, okay, we want to do bipartisan infrastructure. Now, we were not involved in that process. And the reason that matters is the bipartisan infrastructure bill got rid of electric buses. They got rid of the electric vehicles. They had no clean energy standard. So what we've said is, okay, if you want to do the bipartisan infrastructure bill, we'll cast a reluctant vote for it. But there's no way we can do that without the energy standards, without the clean energy standard, without the environmental provisions. So we have to have them together. If they wanted a separate vote on infrastructure, they should have had a infrastructure bill that had those provisions. That has always been the agreement. And now you've got a number of people making noises. But, you know, the president, I think, and Ron Klain are on our side. They understand we have to do both of these together. And we're willing to negotiate, sit down with Mansion Cinema, anyone. But what we're not willing to do is just pass an infrastructure bill that doesn't do anything for the climate. Right, and they're pushing really hard to push that so-called one trillion. It's only $500 billion in new spending over 10 years. It's, it's, a, it's a tiny drop in the bucket. They're trying to force you guys to pass that so that presumably then they can just ignore the other one, uh, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, either they can ignore it or they don't have to do this, the same climate standards. I mean, they've gotten right. the fact that they got rid of the climate standards from the initial bill suggests that they don't want them in there. And they may not want the support uh, on all of the other good parts of uh, the agenda, which is universal preschool, which is community college, which is expanding Medicare, all things that poll, by the way, off the charts and that the president ran on. And I appreciate you're making the point on spending, because over the next 10 years, the U.S. economy is going to be three 
$300 trillion. That's the U.S. economy. So $3.5 trillion, let's just put that in context, is about 1%. And by the way, the defense budget in those 10 years is $7.5 trillion. So it's half of what the defense budget is. So, right. you know, they throw out these big numbers when it comes to social spending, human investment, climate, but they never throw out the big numbers when it comes to, to our aggregate economy or to defense. Yeah, yeah, it really is pretty amazing. Well, good luck. How do you think this is going to play out? Is there anything that we can do to help? Well, I think the Progressive Caucus under Pramila's leadership has been very strong, and, and I hope progressives around the country will be appreciated, because a lot of times they say, well, what are you guys doing? What are you standing up for? Well, we made it very clear. I mean, Pramila directly with the Speaker, directly with the President, we're not going to vote for something without a Build Back Better bill, the, the broader reconciliation bill. And my assumption is, and, and confidence is, eventually we will get both, and it will be at a, a significant level. I don't know whether they're going to come around by Monday, but we have time. I mean, the, 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 whether we don't have it on Monday, it's two, three weeks later, we'll get it done. What we're not going to do is just pass the infrastructure bill. Yeah, good on you. Bill in Sarasota, Florida, you are on the air with Representative Connor. My question has to do with the southern border crisis. They're always talking about the border crisis. And I was wanting to know why the media along with all our politicals and pundits, never, never want to mention why all those people from the Northern Triangle are so desperate to want to leave their own country and are willing to drag their entire families a thousand miles to the north to our country. And just quickly, more specifically, does it have to do with past destructive geopolitical policies from the West? Bill, I appreciate your points and uh, agree with the uh, central premise. First of all, there, I've read somewhere that only about 3% of people around the world ever want to migrate. It's a very hard thing to do. And actually, the hardest to do if you're poor or lower middle class, because it's a lot of risk, it's a lot of expense. So it's not like people en masse are trying to migrate uh, away from their families, away from their communities. It requires uh, either huge ambition or, or very, very dire circumstances. In this case, it's our circumstances. And it's partly, you're right, because of uh, uh, policy decisions, the structural adjustment programs that said fight inflation and uh, have neoliberal policies without it, with underinvestment in public education and infrastructure. Some of our policies towards Guatemala with the United Fruit Company, towards El Salvador in, and, and Honduras in supporting military dictatorships, which is why we have a obligation and, and, and also makes good policy to invest and help these countries rebuild their economies. Kamala Harris has spoken about that, others, and, and you know, that is the long-term solution, uh, but it, it unfortunately has not really been central in the discourse in this country. Dave in Buffalo, New York, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, Representative Rokana and Tom, thank you. Uh, Ro, my question is, uh, should the United States purchase uh, ExxonMobil? And this is how. Uh, ExxonMobil is worth a trillion dollars. President Biden has control over stamping coins. My suggestion is stamp a one-time trillion-dollar coin. Purchase ExxonMobil. Take all their knowledge of the earth, all their hard-working employees, and turn them all into working on the Green New Deal. Stop oil production and gas production. Uh, our world is in crisis, and our future will thank us. Well, Dave, I don't know if I would go that far, but you will like uh, I, I, you will like the 
the, the hearing that I'm going to have, which is for the first time ever, we're going to have Exxon CEO, Chevron CEO, BP CEO, a Shell CEO come in front of my committee. I chair the Environment Subcommittee of Oversight, and we're going to co-convene it with the whole Oversight Committee. Uh, you know, others have tried getting these executives, but they didn't have subpoena power. We do, and so I, I, everything says that they're going to comply October 28th. We're going to ask them about why they've engaged in climate disinformation in the past. Uh, will they commit explicitly to stopping any of that, stopping killing the legislation? And the reason they, they have to commit under oath is that they're telling their own board, their own climate, their own customers that they're not doing this. So it's going to be an explosive historic hearing. When's that going to be? October 28th. October 28th. <laughs> I'll get some popcorn ready. <laughs> David in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, David, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Question for the congressman is, does he personally support ranked choice voting? And why is it so hard to get Democrats to support ranked choice voting when it obviously would be beneficial for them in many ways, like I saw uh, statistics point to Biden would have had an easier time winning the primary had a ranked choice voting system been in more states. I do support ranked choice voting, uh, and I, the reason I support it is uh, uh, my understanding is it makes it I, uh, easier for uh, women, for uh, candidates of color, for uh, non-establishment candidates to uh, be able to uh, mount a campaign and be taken uh, seriously. And it even uh, increases the possibility of non-major party candidates. And so anything that that expands the, the uh, democracy and, and makes it easier for people to participate, I support. Now, uh, you know, there are others who disagree with that, but based on the evidence I've seen, I'm, I'm for it and have publicly supported it. Mark in Long Beach, California, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, Congressman, thank you for talk, taking my call. Thank you, Mark. I got a question for you. I'm not going to talk about the uh, the infrastructure bill because you talked about it when you first came on, but I do have one question for you, and here goes. In your honest opinion, Congressman, do you honestly think a condensed form of a voting rights bill can be passed because if not, it's really going to hurt the Democrats in the midterm 14 months from now. Mark, I agree with you. And this is why all of us have gotten behind Joe Manchin's reformed, you know, smaller version of uh, voting rights. So the Progressive Caucus has, uh, we had a meeting this week. Mondair Jones said, went over the bill. He explained why it was uh, on balance a very good bill. But the challenge is that to get even the Mansion bill passed, Mansion has to be uh, willing to have an exception to the filibuster to get his own bill passed. And that is really what it comes down to. And I hope uh, Clyburn and the president and others will be able to prevail on him to do that. Otherwise, there's, there's no path to get 60 votes. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one. We we just have 40 seconds, not enough time for another caller. How how do you expect this to play out, and what kinds of cards do the Democrats have in terms of changing the filibuster? In this, I realize you're in the House and this is in the Senate, but I really think it's going to take the leadership of the president. And my sense is, after the debt limit fight and infrastructure, uh, he will turn to it. And I think it's going to take him 
privately making the case that this is a civil rights moment like the 1960s and publicly making that case and uh, really pushing for at least an exception when it comes to voting rights. Uh, there is there's no other way. And I, I do believe, actually, that the president cares about uh, his legacy on issues of race. And, and this is the biggest, biggest uh, issue if he cares about that. Yeah. Time to use what Teddy Roosevelt referred to as the bully pulpit. Exactly. Yeah. Tim in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, you are on the air with Congressman Ghana. Yes, sir. I need to find out if our attorney general is starting to pick up things and what else have we got to look forward to shortly with him. I think Tim was asking if uh, the attorney general is going to go after the crimes of the Trump administration and what the progress is. Tim, they are. They're investigating it, but I, I, I hope they will provide a report uh, to Congress. Obviously, they have to be deliberate uh, and uh, they have to... Uh, uh, investigate and, and Congress shouldn't intervene, but I want to make sure that they're actually pursuing it and that they uh, are not just uh, moving on. And so I hope uh, the Attorney General will provide a report both to the uh, January 6th Commission and to the Judiciary Committee uh, about the progress made. Bill in Camp Wood, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. I would like to ask you if you would support people being able to be registered to vote when they're born automatically. They wouldn't be able to vote until they turn 18, but they're registered when they're right. born. Right. You could write yeah. them a letter or something, or, you know, I don't know exactly yeah. how it works. Like getting a Social but, Security yeah. number. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm open to thinking. I wonder whether you, you would want the automatic registration maybe when they turn 18, so they remember it and it's a reminder. But, uh, you know, and I support the, the right to vote at 16, so maybe at that point, so that it's within high school. But in terms of getting people automatically registered and uh part of the system, I support it and would probably need to think about what's the best way to do it so that people are aware of that, that they've been registered and actually will uh, vote. DeLeon, if I'm saying that right in Chicago, am I mispronouncing your name? Uh, no, that's close enough. Okay. I've been called Thank worse. All right. <laughs> Thank you. My uh, question is, I don't understand why the Democrats that are trying to get this bill passed only mention what the yearly outs. Uh, expenditure is going to be it. They should always talk about 300, mil, uh, 300 billion for whatever we want to do, use it for, like 100 billion for infrastructure or whatever. You should only mention the 3.5 trillion figure if someone wants to know what it would cost over 10 years. You don't start out with that. You just say 300 billion for this, that, and the other. And it would seem a lot better to the common man out here because they hear $3.5 trillion and right away they run. I agree with you that we have sort of let the messaging get away from us and that the conversation has become much more, unfortunately, about $3.5 trillion as opposed to here's what this is going to mean. This is going to mean you get to have a, a hearing aid. This is going to mean you get to go to the dentist, uh, that your kids are going to have preschool or child care. Uh, that you're going to uh, be able to finally tackle climate change by having a standard here in this country to get to, to 100% renewable energy. And for whatever reason, the debate has become about the number uh, and w what has been lost in that is all of the things that are going to happen to improve people's lives. So uh, I take the criticism. Partly the debate has become over the numbers uh, because we've had resistance from uh, individuals in, in the Senate. But even there, you know, we should talk about their unwillingness to raise taxes on the rich. And 
actually polls very well to be taxing the ultra-rich. It's a political winner in, in, in addition to being the substantively correct policy. Dawn in San Antonio, Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, guys. Happy Friday. Thank you. Um, I just want to know why the messaging more isn't more about how much it's going to cost, uh, you know, as far as fixing climate change or our health care system if we don't do it. Because prevention is always, always cheaper than reaction and trying to pay for it later on, isn't it? Gail, that is a, a, a great point. Earl Blumenhauer was a, a congressman uh, from Oregon, actually came up to me on the House floor yesterday, and he said he's writing a, a paper that he's going to send to me and has done research on what is the exact cost of all of these environmental disasters. And his view is that those costs dwarf the uh, trillion dollars or so that is uh, actually in our bill for climate investment. So I think you're right that we ought to be documenting the costs of natural disasters that have been exacerbated by climate, the climate crisis. We already have plenty of examples about that. Uh, not, it's not even hypothetical anymore uh, and make the case that uh, this is a prudent investment. Yeah, we literally here in Portland, because we had three consecutive 116 degree days, have trees fully mature. There's one right out in front of our building where they're just wilting. It's like a broccoli stalk that a piece is just kind of falling off and limbs falling off. But I've never seen this before in my life. The crown of the tree, the top of the tree, just separating as the tree is wilting. Uh, I, I, I've, never in my life have I seen such a thing. We, ha we just have 20 seconds before the, before the break here, sir. Um, uh, Earl Blumenauer is my congressman, by the way. So we uh, is he added? Oh. <laughs> yeah, he represents uh, Portland. You know he's great. He always he's always coming up with uh, creative ideas and uh, is always sharing things. And he's he's certainly got the right values on on the climate crisis. He's had him for the last twenty years. Yeah, he's a good guy. Uh, he he's a he's a very good guy, and he understands the importance of local politics as well. Jerry in Chester, Virginia, you are on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, guys. How you doing, Congressman? As far as you know, uh, is uh, Nancy Pelosi going to schedule the uh, bipartisan vote for Monday? Yes or no? And that's, I, got I don't think she's going to. Jerry, I don't, I don't think she's going to schedule a vote that will not pass. And we've been very clear in the Progressive Caucus uh -huh. that we will not be voting for it if uh, if, if there's uh, uh, if if the reconciliation bill isn't there. And so uh, she's not going to put it on the floor if the votes aren't there. Jan in Etna Green, Indiana, you are on the air with Congressman Kana. I would like to know if you voted for the Iron Dome for Israel. I know the standard boilerplate statement for this as well. They need that to ward off the rockets coming from Hamas. Well, the reason Hamas is firing the rockets off is because uh, Israel has continually violated the original um, borderlines uh, between Palestine and Israel. They're going in there and bulldozing down houses and putting up their own. Jed, I appreciate the question. I did vote for the Iron Dome funding for the reasons you mentioned, that it is a defensive system. That said, I agree with you that there have to be constraints on what Israel has done, and that's why I've led letters uh, to make sure that uh, there is no demolition of, of villages using United States aid. I've called for the lifting of the embargo in Gaza. I have opposed new settlements. 
Uh, it's a very difficult issue. I, I do think Israel has a right to defend its citizens from incoming uh, rocket fire, but I also recognize that uh, there is a lot that the United States needs to do uh, to stop the new settlements and to, to stop any of the demolition of, of, of villages. Joe in Cupertino, California, you are on the air with your congressman. I wanted to ask a question about Genetech. Can you do something about lowering the price of a drug that they've just come up with? It's for treating uh, chronic leukemia, which I have, and as a result of this Roundup lawsuit, I'm understanding the pills are about $15,000 a month. I'm 60. If I live to be life expectancy, it's like $4 million in prescription drugs. I don't know if you can do anything about it. These are in our district, but I was part of the trial study that helped invent this because I took chemo instead of the drug. Now you don't have to take chemo, but I can't afford $4 million to live 20 years. Can you look into that for me? And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, John, thank you for calling. First of all, uh, offline, please contact our office, because since you are a constituent, I can help, uh, actually, with your specific case and see if we can do something about it. It's outrageous, as you describe it, and this is why it's so important to give Medicare the ability to negotiate on drug prices. Uh, what was killed, unfortunately, in the House Ways and Means Committee, what it would have done is said that Medicare could set a price. By the way, it would still be 120 percent, up to 100 120 percent of what other countries pay. Bernie Sanders and I had said it shouldn't be more than the average price of what other countries pay. The compromise was that it should be at least not more than 120 percent of what other countries pay. And that was killed. And the, if we don't have Medicare uh, negotiating and if we don't have a, uh, a maximum fair price that is set by uh, HHS, the Health and Human Services Secretary, then you have these outrageous conditions, particularly with people with chronic disease like yours. And that's why uh, we are going to continue to push for this drug pricing reform. But in your particular case, Joe, let me uh, look into it. Mary Gay in Spokane, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Good day. Don't you think it's strange that a freshman representative, Jim Jordan, had daily phone calls with President Trump? Mary Gay, I, I don't think Jim Jordan was a freshman, but I, but I do think that it is true that there were some members of Congress who had unusual access to Donald Trump. Uh, he, he obviously had his group of people who he really wanted uh, to, to have a close proximity to him. What's unfortunate, I don't begrudge anyone wanting to talk to the president. I mean, Biden would call me every day. He doesn't. I'd be happy to talk to him. What I do think is very sad is that the Republican Party today has become radicalized. And if you're not for Trump, you basically don't have a place in the modern day Republican Party in the House. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh Thank you, Tom. Waiting on my history book. Um, Congressman Rokana, what a lot of people don't understand is that here in Alabama, we have a, a power company. It's Alabama Power, a subsidiary of the Southern Company. If a citizen here creates a solar panel field, it's illegal to put up a wind tower here. That's, that's just flat out all there is to it. It's illegal to have a wind tower. But if a private citizen puts up a solar field, they then have to turn around and pay a fine to Alabama Power. I call it a fee. And now there is legislation supposedly coming into Congress that's going to make this a national law that no private citizen can have solar power without supporting the power company of wherever they live. To me, this is, you know 
horrible because they don't own the sun, they don't own the wind. We as free citizens should be allowed to have our own solar panels and our own wind towers. Have you heard of this legislation being presented yet? Norma, I have not, but based on your description, I would vehemently oppose it. Do you happen to know who is the author of the legislation? If not, I could find out from my staff, and we will work to, to oppose it. I can't imagine any Democrats would be for that. Yeah, I'm sorry I dropped Norma off the board, but uh, uh, I, she's she's politically smart. She she knows how to contact your office, yeah. so tell right. your office to be right. on alert for a, for a call from uh, Norma in uh, in Alabama. We will do that. Dave, and, New and we will look into it. Yeah, Dave, in Br New Brunswick, New Jersey, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. If we were to eliminate fossil fuels and have renewable energy, there would be a windfall to the fossil fuel companies because you would need a lot of fossil fuel to build all the wind turbines and solar panels. I know it's premature, but has anybody considered our windfall tax or regulating the fossil fuel companies when we do this big build-out? The questions you're asking are some of the ones we're going to explore in the, in the hearing, where we're going to have Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, CEOs all before the committee, and they have promised their own shareholders that they want to have a sustainable future, that they want to have green energy investments, that they are interested in a transition and talking about climate change, and yet they continue to spend millions of dollars on climate disinformation and try to kill climate legislation. So one of the things we, we hope to do is get a clear commitment from these companies about whether they're going to live up to their rhetoric and then see what regulation is necessary uh, to ensure that. Bob, in Huntsville, Alabama, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Hey, sir, I was just going to have to ask why y'all want to lift the payroll cap on Social Security taxes. And I'm not trying to be accusatory, but you're paying less than the average American. I spoke to my representative, who's a knucklehead named Mo Brooks, and he said, I've already paid in more than I ever get out. And I said, but I pay school taxes, and I haven't had kids in school in decades. Well, I, I, I think you're saying should we be raise, re eliminating the, the cap on Social Security? That's, that's uh, correct. And I, I support that. I mean, I, I support that. You know, people forget Barack Obama ran on this. This was not a very progressive idea. He said if you're making over 250000 you ought to continue to pay uh, your payroll tax on, on Social Security. You know, whether for members of Congress, we should probably do it over uh, our income. We should pay up for the full income for members of Congress. But for most people, you could keep the 250000 And you pay the Social Security tax on that. And guess what? Not only would we have Social Security be solvent for 20, 30 years, we could also increase Social Security benefits. It's one of the simple fixes. It's popular, uh, and I strongly support it. Stephen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you're on the air with Congressman Akana. Hi. Um, I'm not sure you can help with this, but um, <laughs> I have uh, uh, two senators here in Tennessee that I am absolutely incapable of contacting. Um, every time I call them, uh, it's never a person. It's always, um, it's always a, a voicemail thing. I never hear back from them. Um, I just don't know what we're supposed to do when we can't even get through to our elected representatives. See, it's a big 
problem. It's a challenge. You know, you read history, and Abraham Lincoln used to have the White House open. Anyone could walk up and make appointments, and half of his time went on people who wanted jobs instead of winning the Civil War. And now, partly because of security, I mean, the Capitol has almost become a fortress. People can't just walk into the Capitol. Uh, partly uh, because of the size of our population, uh, folks are more distant. Uh, but I think we have all have to make an effort to be accessible. I, one of the reasons I love doing uh, Tom's program is it helps me stay in touch with, with constituents. We try to do digital Facebook town halls. We, we try to be a, a, active in the community. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I can't speak to the senators from Tennessee. And honestly, it's not even a Republican or Democratic thing. I think we just have to have an expectation that elected officials in this new age try using all media to be accessible. Yeah. Bernie used to suggest just go, you know, rent the local uh, high school gymnasium. Typically, it's yeah. free, and uh, announce that there's going to be a meeting when that when you know that that member is going to be in town and invite them. What do you think? That's that's not a bad idea. Not a bad yeah. idea at all. Yeah, kind of guerrilla <laughs> marketing, but you know, reverse. Zach in North Hollywood, California. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Democrats and Republicans. Those are just antiquated words describing the old America. The only thing we really have left now is progressives, and check yourself when you go to say Republicans, they're obstructors. It's easier to say it's one less syllable, and they don't deserve the extra measure of elegance that Republicans offer. So, Zach, what's your question? It's clean green versus dirty red from here on out. Here's my question. I want you to listen to how this just rolls right off my tongue. How much would you say the DOD and the Pentagon spend on defense every year? Well, they're spending uh, about $740 billion this year. We just unfortunately passed the defense budget last year. I voted against it, but uh, about $740 billion. Okay, here's the capper. See how that just rolled right off my tongue? Didn't even hear it. The word defense. But it's really a misnomer. It's a false meaning. The real question is how much are we spending on our offensive activities around the world every year? Oh, offense versus defense. Huh. Thoughts, Congressman? Well, you're right that, first of all, the, the wars in Afghanistan and, and in Iraq have cost us trillions of dollars. Uh, it was $50 billion a, a year to stay in Afghanistan. That's why I think the president, one of the reasons the president's decision to withdraw was a, a courageous and, and correct one. And then we have this overseas contingency fund that is literally a fund to be able to engage in overseas interventions. So uh, you're right that we're overextended in, in countries around the world. Uh, and that these things would be better spent than some of these investments in, in the United States. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hey, guys. Tom and Representative Connor, thanks for the always great town hall. And, and kudos to you, uh, Congressman, for passing the amendment to end the U.S. complicity in the uh, Saudi bombing and blockading of Yemen. Uh, 16 million people are at risk of starving there, as you know. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, talking about the Pentagon budget, it's going to, the ND, 
AA, that path will be $780 billion this year, which is outrageous considering all the humanitarian crises we face here and abroad. And my question, Congressman, you know, the pandemic's laid bare the failings of our for-profit health care system. I, I think it's no coincidence that countries with national health care systems uh, where people have regular checkups and relationships and trust with their doctors, they have much higher vaccination rates. Uh, the U.K. is at 82 percent fully vaccinated, Canada 70 percent, et cetera, et cetera. So, Congressman Khanna, how much of a priority is it in the reconciliation bill um, for you and the Progressive Caucus to not only expand Medicare benefits for people over 65, but also to lower the age of eligibility to 60? I think this would be widely popular and a game changer for all Americans. Um, thank you, Congressman Khanna. Jeff, I appreciate uh, all of your points. If, if you give me 30 seconds on Yemen, because Bernie Sanders and I, for the last five years, have been working it's, on this. It's the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world. We passed the War Powers Resolution, first time a War Powers Resolution has ever passed, about two years ago. It led to Trump voluntarily suspending the refueling of Saudi planes. Biden adopted that policy. Uh, now we have an amendment that I, I just passed. Uh, and if it can stay in, it would support, stop all of the air parts to the Saudis and finally end this war. So we really need this to stay in the final NDAA. I support Medicare for all. I support getting it to 60. I don't think it'll be part of this reconciliation. We need to work on it after that. And Dean in Wisconsin. Hey, Dean, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hey, Donald Trump did an executive order for a 10 years uh, imprisonment for anybody uh, entering a federal building. Uh, all these people on January 6th, I wish they would get charged with treason, treason with, which is a death penalty, but then plea bargain it down to what their fearless leader um, already um, set up with, with that executive order so that everybody gets 10 years. This um, misdemeanor stuff that they're getting, it's just beyond me. I agree. There needs to be uh, serious consequences, felony consequences, and, and, and prosecution. I was uh, talking to someone, I don't want to mention who, and on the other side, Republican, said, oh, they didn't, this person didn't uh, invade the Capitol. They were just scaling the walls. I said, you got to be kidding me. So you're saying it's okay to scale the walls if they didn't come into the Capitol? I mean, the irony here is you have Democrats and progressives and ordinary Americans defending property rights. I mean, I thought the conservatives were the ones who believed that you defend uh, property, but they basically basically engaged in the destruction of, of property, of the, the federal property, and folks are saying, oh, give them a pass. I mean, that is uh, antithetical to, to uh, the fundamental principle of the rule of law. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khan. This isn't what I called about, but I just want to quickly say that I have the same issue with Genentech and Venclexta. And I got on a copay program, so it's costing me either zero or five dollars a month. And I'll look up the details and call your office and tell them so they can help people. But what I called Thank about you. is very kind. I don't, I don't like um, calling infrastructure spending. I think we should always refer to it as investment. Investment is money you put into something that pays back more than you put into it. Uh, how do you feel about that? I completely agree with you, Kevin. We have to call it productive investment that's going to lead to GDP growth and that will pay for itself. You know, the Republicans have been running for the longest time on we're going to cut taxes, tax cuts are going to have economic growth, and that's going to pay for itself. And it never works out. It's actually not true, but they sell it that way. When we actually have infrastructure investments that does lead to economic growth, that does often pay for itself, and yet we don't make that case. We need to make the case that these are pro-growth policies, and I think you're exactly right. Eris in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. 
Yes, Tom and uh, Congressman, thank you for your hospitality. I just have one question. Uh, yesterday was a very concerning issue about homelessness in our USA, which is a very sad uh, reality. And I'd like to propose, if the congressman would ever consider this, or the, our Democratic Congress would consider cutting the budget of the Department of Homeless Security in half, and that 50 percent to be used to provide housing for the homeless in our country. Well, Harris, we could. We don't need to, to cut the Department of Homeland Security in half. We could fund the vaccine water bill, waters bill. I think it's thirteen billion dollars, which would create ho- housing for every person who's unsheltered, including wraparound services, which are critical. Uh, or Elizabeth Warren's bill, which would incentivize localities to build more low-cost housing. Uh, it actually doesn't cost that much money. It, it should be a priority. Uh, and it, it, we will push for it after this reconciliation. Unfortunately, it's not in the reconciliation bill. We had on the show yesterday a guest from Finland. They have basically declared homelessness uh, an end to homelessness uh, by, by the, I, I think, seven, five or six years from now. There, there will be no homeless. And they're just, all they're doing is they're buying up unused, you know, uh, distressed properties on the market, turning them and, and renting them out uh, to homeless people at zero cost if you can't afford to pay or a sliding scale. Well, it makes so much sense to, for us to do that, not just because of the morality of it, that every human being has dignity and, and no person should be left out in the streets without uh, a place to, to, to live, but also because of the impact it has on communities. I mean, most people, would, in my view, would be happy to pay for something that uh, made sure that there wasn't homelessness in their community. So for, both from a moral perspective and a community perspective, it's the right policy. He said it's costing 15,000 euros a year less than the people still being homeless because of all the services that they're using. That's amazing. Well, yeah. we'll have to look at that. It is. Congressman Connor, thanks for dropping by. Great to talk with you. Always great. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Christina in Hudson, New York. Hey, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, Tom, just really quickly, the segment you had with Rokana, just hearing him speak, um, he's so succinct to the point. Everything's clearly defined. The Progressive Party has a platform, has a message. But I feel as though mainstream media, I mean, I read a lot of different publications. I sometimes watch regular news just to see, you know, what, how, they're, how they're offering the information up, the important information. I mean, the Democratic Party has a messaging problem. And I really feel like, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I read people like Eric Bollert, who, you know, talks, um, you know, he tweeted something about the New York Times article, you know, saying it's all about congressional dysfunction. It's exhausting how hard the press works not to acknowledge radical and dangerous GOP policies. Right. But the New York Times is coming out calling it congressional dysfunction. Right. Yeah. You know, not know. not Republican. You, you know what yeah. I mean? No, I, I totally get it, Christina. And anyway, you know, that's in it. the situation is that there. the Republican Party has historically uh, been attractive to authoritarian leaders and followers. Um, you know, there's the right. old cliche: Republicans, you know, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. And right. in 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 a political party where authoritarianism and chains of command are not only accepted, but uh, pre- preferred. 
frankly. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot easier to control a message, to push the message from the top down. The Democratic Party has historically been the party of labor, the party of working people, the party of poor people, the right. party of the middle class. Um, and 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 it has always been a bottom-up party. It's been the party that the unions, you know, were part of to help working people. And right. so it's a lot harder to drive, you know, when you've got hundreds of messages coming from the bottom up to pick the messages that you're going to focus on. Plus, the Republican Party, you know, was very smart in getting essentially getting in bed with, uh, you know, right-wing broadcasters and billionaires back in the day. Well, yes. And yes. they've got 1,500 right-wing radio stations across the United States and now 300, uh, as far as I can tell, Spanish-language right-wing radio stations, which is a sure. new phenomenon just in the last eight years or so. And I just wish there was, I'm sorry, I just wish there was some sort of mechanism or some some sort of way that they could employ like advertisers like like the lincoln project was doing they did an excellent job i didn't i didn't agree with you know them yeah their their background political ideologies but they did a really good job we need something like that for the democratic party i agree but like even that. the even the lincoln Thank project you. ads uh, they wouldn't run them on fox news christina thank you for the call it's a tough one it's a tough one Tom Harbin with you. I just wanted to give you kind of a, uh, a moment of geek, a moment of memory, as it were. This is President Dwight Eisenhower. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. That's, that's Dwight Eisenhower's famous cross of iron speech. It was given while he was president of the United States. And boy, would I like to hear something like that again. I, I think we're on the edge of it. And this guy was a Republican, right? He was the last legitimately elected Republican president who didn't, didn't commit treason or follow one who committed treason to become president. Dwight Eisenhower. Amazing. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls here. Grant in Ventura, California. Hey, Grant, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I just want to connect a few more dots and add to Senator Whitehouse's information on justice or injustice, Kavanaugh. Sure. All Trump's appointments, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, have something in common. 
they all served on G.W. Bush's legal team that argued before the Supreme Court to stop the recount in Florida and give Bush the 2000 election. Now, I, I knew that Kavanaugh had. I didn't know that Gorsuch and, and Amy Coney Barrett had served on that team. Yes. They had served on that team. And, and John was Roberts was, was one of the lead guys on that team. Yeah. Which is why Bush put him in the, in the, in the Supreme Court. That's amazing. Exactly. So these are all people who have st helped steal an election. Exactly. And it should be noted, Tom, that Roger Stone initiated the stopping of the recount in Florida, sending white men by bus with baseball bats to stop the Wade County recount process. Yeah, I remember and that. And Stone would later bring violent insurrection by bus from Georgia to try and block Biden's certification. Yeah. So Stone is tied to both the Koch brothers and to George Bush. And Richard so Nixon. To that, and to say that George Bush is the sanity of the Republican Party is like saying Goebbels was the sanity of the Nazi Party. Right. And I learned this information from reading Dark Money, which is a fantastic book. book by Jane Mayer. Yeah. yeah, remarkable, remarkable stuff. I guess it just kind of stands alone. Eric in Anderson Island, Washington. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? About this January 6th committee that they're working on right now, and they've mm -hmm. issued subpoenas. That's correct. Is there anything you can you can tell me that would give me some confidence that this isn't another Groundhog Day with subpoenas coming out of the Congress? And they're not... I mean, there's no consequences. If, well, there were no consequences were, when, when Bill Barr was running the Department of Justice. We will see how much steel Merrick Garland may have in his spine. It just seems to me like listening and reading about it when they gave those four subpoenas yesterday, uh, issued those four subpoenas yesterday, it just felt like, here we go again. Yeah. And um, I, I, would, I would love to have some, some type of confidence because... People perceive this. This is what leads to people like Trump getting into office. Yeah. When yeah. they see two different Americas, when they see that justice is not blind. And, and I'm just wondering, is there any way that they can be charged with contempt of Congress for not showing up and not testifying? Yes, they can. And, and it's, a, it's prosecutable. And uh, but it, it has to be prosecuted by the Justice Department, obviously, during the Trump administration, when re Republicans basically just blew off subpoenas. Bill Barr would not prosecute them. Um, Merrick Garland is our attorney general now. He runs the Justice Department and, uh, you know, he hasn't spoken publicly on this. But if he doesn't enforce these subpoenas, I'm going to be seriously upset. And I think a lot of the rest of America is. Eric, thank you. Your point is well taken. Kelly in Lake Havasu, Arizona. What's on your mind today, Kelly? Well, Tom, you know how Fox News and, and Republican talking points are always on things that if they mention it, it, it puts us in the position of having to actually explain some complicated thing, right? So what I'm doing is I'm using their exact same logic. And when they mention things like, let's say, critical race theory, mm -hmm. I look at them puzzled and I say, well, I don't follow NASCAR. So you get a laugh oh, out of it. Oh, race as in racing. Also, right. Right. And, and then they're also in the position where now they have to try to explain critical race theory to you, which won't come out anything what it is. Right. So it just it puts them in the same boat they always try to put us in. 
So when they say to you, when they repeat their Fox line, they say to you, uh, yeah, this is, this is a, a way of teaching history to make young white children feel ashamed and guilty of being white. How do you respond? I, I just, just exactly like I said, I said, I don't understand what that has to do with NASCAR. You said this was something about racing. Ah, uh, okay. I, I, I think we need a uh, we need a step two for this workshop that <laughs> for yeah, this I'll, debate. I'll workshop it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right, Kelly. Thanks a lot. Good. Good start. Good start. We're off to a good start here. David in Minneapolis. Hey, David. What's in your mind? Hey. Good afternoon, Tom. Uh, just a quick comment on public education funding. Mm -hmm. There was a gentleman that called earlier, and he had said, uh, just as an analogy, and this is a common argument often made by the right that, uh, well, his kids no longer use the school system, so he shouldn't have to pay taxes. I just think we need to be prepared to counter that argument and, and be prepared to say, hey, uh, there's no better system for the masses. Most likely you went to public education and somebody paid for you. So you don't just get the luxury of just deciding you don't want to pay anymore. And so I just, I th that's all I really wanted to say. And I just think yeah. that, that is too often slipped by and without any counter argument. So right. And, and, and if we had no public education, we would, you know, functionally have no society. I mean, you know, all the inventions, all the businesses that have been started, all the, all the things that have come out of people having gotten educated in public schools uh, would not have happened. And America would be a third world country. I mean, it's just that simple. So, you know, it's, it's very straightforward stuff, whether you have kids or not. Public education is helping you, and uh, you know that just can't be said often enough. Thank you very much for that, David. Well said, Michael in Chicago. Hey, Michael, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I uh, just finished your book uh, on the uh, hidden history of American oligarchy, and I'm doing as a hobby, but also to write a book. I'm revamping the United States con uh, Constitution to be more of a democracy and uh, get all the best ideas from the left wing. But I am stuck on. The implementation of the uh, re, uh, reinstating the fairness doctrine and the telecommunication laws that required local ownership of media, uh, how would those affect your show, the Young Turks, the Majority Report with Sam Cedar, Democracy Now with uh, Amy Goodman? Like, how would it interact with that? Well, uh, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm guessing that you're operating under a misunderstanding of what the fairness doctrine required. It did not require that radio or television stations have politically balanced programming. All it required was that if the ownership of a station, and this was a common thing back in the day, back when, when I worked at WGIM-TV when I was 17 years old, back in, in 1966, um, the, the station, or 68 I guess it was, um, the owner of the station would come on and give an editorial in the evening, you know, a little 60 second editorial. And we had to balance that, in fact it was part of my job to help find the guy, you know, some local guy who would say the opposing voice, right? But if it wasn't the owner of the station, there was no requirement for balance. That was the only requirement for balance. And then the other part of the Fairness Doctrine required that stations do what was called, quote, programming in the public interest. And mostly what that meant was run public service announcements and, uh, you know, just don't get too crazy. So the Fairness Doctrine would have no effect on me or my radio stations whatsoever. The Telecommunications Act allowed for massive consolidation of stations and allowed for multi-state ownership of radio and television stations and led to three companies controlling probably 80% of all the radio stations in the United States. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and one television network, Sinclair, owning over 200 television stations. 
if that was if that if the original ownership rules were put into place forcing a breakup of of those so that they went back to local ownership I think the principal effect that it would have on on my show and on other progressive shows is that we would suddenly have hundreds of stations who might be interested in carrying our shows rather than just taking the right wing stuff that it's being crammed down from you know the billionaire ownership and management of these big networks answer your question Michael I think so I think so um, so it wouldn't like if they were implemented as a law or a, a constitutional article, it wouldn't be like, oh, TYT is just abolished now by law. No, no, <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. And by the way, these are not constitutional issues. I mean, the, the, uh, well, arguably they are because they, they fall under the Commerce Clause. But, uh, you know, the FCC, the, the FCC regulation, F, the ownership laws, all that kind of stuff, uh, those are simply laws. And, and the Supreme Court had has determined over the years on multiple occasions that they were entirely constitutional laws um, because they, the federal government does have the power to regulate interstate commerce in the United States, which is what most of this falls under. Jeremy in Douglas, Arizona. Hey, Jeremy, what's on your mind today? You had a caller earlier um, that was talking about ending racism, ending the concept of race um, as being a descriptor for humans. And I think he's on the right track it comes from uh, enlightenment education. My uh, my grandmother didn't use the word race or racism. And uh, <clears throat> what I was taught is race was originally used to describe basically categories of things. So you could belong to um, occupational, the race of blacksmiths, coopers, carpenters, what have you. Or um, <clears throat> wines. Uh, the races would be uh, Zinfandels and Ports. Um, the word that she used was ethnocentrism. And, and she explained to me that if we can just get on board with not thinking about people as different races, but as different ethnicities, we can start to move forward. And you know, she didn't say this, but we can start to shift the Overton window. So it's a conscious effort that you have to make. And it, it's going to be hard because the word racist, <clears throat> the, the connotation, you know, punches you in the gut. It, it doesn't have the same weight as if you, you know, call somebody or accuse somebody of being an ethnocentrist. But it, if, if you use those words, if you drop race and you just use ancestry or ethnicity, it starts the conversation. Perhaps. Um, it also is used by white racists who want to, um, who don't want to have a conversation about white privilege. And so well, they're saying, well, let's not talk about race, or I don't see race. You know, the Stephen Colbert is famous. You know, satirical line, obviously. Right. Yeah, and um, Morgan Freeman, same thing. Um, but if if we just change the word and we say instead yeah. of white racist, we say white ethnocentrist. It's the same thing. It just doesn't have that same gut yeah. punch. Yeah. Oh, I get um, your point. I get your point. Yeah, just my thought. Yeah, Jeremy. Thank you, Luigi in Pensacola, Florida. Hey, Luigi, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Tom, and thank you, Professor. Let's see, should I take a Hartman economics class today or a Hartman political science class? <laughs> I'm dumbfounded. But anyway, there was a gentleman earlier that called about 
pardon me, the education, supposed post-secondary education bill in Florida, and I have the copy of it here. Essentially, and I know you've spoken about it before, essentially what it does, it required the uh, Florida State uh, College system to annually uh, assess the intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity. And also, it shielded shielded faculty members or, say, staff members of CM or anyone who is afraid of any, any ideas or opinions that they might find uncomfortable. That's basically part of what the bill does. Okay, and of course it's it's being challenged right now. But old Warney, our, our, our governor, Jeff Santos, he he bragged about last week when some of the lower courts are um, overturning his mass mandates and other mandates. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't care about that because it's going onto the circuit courts and other courts that he appointed all the judges, and he bragged about it. And sure enough, they, they upheld his yeah. point of view in the courts. So I mean, I'm sorry to go on, Tom, because you're, what you had. Today was an incredible array. So, uh, Professor, uh, uh, I'll let you. <laughs> I just can't. I love talking to you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Luigi. And 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 you're absolutely right. And this is one of you know similar laws that are being introduced all across the United States to basically prevent um, teachers from teaching anything that might quote make people uncomfortable. And what that yeah. what that is code for is teaching the history of race in the United States. And the people that it would make uncomfortable are the white supremacists who think that only white people should be running this country, only white people should be making decisions in this country, and only white people should be on the media. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just, I mean, yes, sir, Tom. they just want to take America back to the 1950s because we really were there for a long, long time. Um, and it's, yes, it's sir, very Tom. unfortunate. Thanks a lot for the call, Luigi. It's a good one. Uh, thank you for adding to the contra- uh, contributing to the con- conversation. Matt in Spartansburg, South Carolina. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind today? Not much, Tom. How you doing today? I'm fine. What's up? Uh, I was calling to talk about China. China with their um, their COVID deaths. I think that they're severely undernumbered, if I might say. I'm guessing you're right, particularly in the regions that uh, where the Uyghurs live. But um, you know, who who knows? They're they're claiming yeah, that they've got about six thousand COVID deaths. We have six hundred and sixty thousand. Yeah, South Carolina has 12. It yeah, just doesn't 12, make 000. sense. Yeah, yeah on the one but hand. Why do- on the other hand, they're vaccinating like crazy. They shut down the whole country. Uh, you know, they, they have extraordinary police powers. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's possible. Yeah, but why? Why would they want to, I mean, essentially lie? Because they don't want to look bad in the eyes of the world. Uh, I guess that does make sense. Yeah, I'm guessing that the the the, the six thousand figure is probably a real figure for most of you know metropolitan uh, areas in China. But if you go into the you know into the areas near Tibet and you know the far western part of China, and particularly the the area, I forget what it's called. Uh, yeah, uh, I, it starts with an S, but I can't. Anyhow, the area where the Uyghurs live. I'm guessing that there's been an explosion that hasn't been dealt with, and they're just, you know, allowing that to be um, maybe even population control. Who knows? Because, you know, getting honest information out of China is very difficult. But but they did do a good job of cracking down. I mean, you know, uh, Taiwan, which is not a communist state. Taiwan is a a progressive democracy. 
Uh, it's much smaller. They only have 23 million people. But Taiwan shut down their country as, you know, they got their first COVID case a day after we got ours. Ours, ours was January 20th, 2020. Theirs was January 21st. And they use their national health program. They have a single payer health care system in Taiwan, um, which is very similar to, in, in, in some ways to what China has now put into place. Uh, they use that as for testing and contact tracing. And for the entirety of 2020, they had fewer than 20 people die of COVID and, and just a few thousand cases in the whole country for a whole year. And, you know, now they're up to 16,000 cases and about 800 deaths in Taiwan. Most of that has been from the Delta variant, but they're vaccinating like crazy. So they're, you know, they're getting past that. Um, so it's not like it's impossible, you know, if you have an aggressive program, if you, you know, aggressively shut down the country and, and take it seriously. Man, I got to run, but thanks for the call. And thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. And thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us, all the time, every day. Get out there, get active, participate. The number for Congress, 202-224-3121. Give them a piece of your mind, right? One thing, just pick one topic to talk about and give your two senators and your member of the House a shout. Tag your it. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 